What's up, you guys? My name is Jared. I'm an alcoholic. Laura, thanks for asking me to share. It's always good to see you in meetings. You and Dean, you guys are a fucking fantastic duo. Partners in crime. It's good to see some familiar other faces in the room. And uh, welcome to anybody who didn't announce himself as new. Um, really hope you keep coming back. Uh, there's two speakers tonight. So if there's anything that doesn't resonate with you that I say, uh, there's another 40 minutes and hopefully that does. Um, so uh, I came back in the middle of the pandemic of 2020. Um, pandemic. Oh, and uh, you know what? It's like, oh, man, I'm so fucking glad I came back during that time. Um, I got really lucky coming back during that time. And uh, I got really just coming, coming back in general. And um, I think ultimately... Uh, getting sober on Zoom was a much better way of uh, a better option than what I was doing. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I had gone to Ikipa last weekend and um, fucking boy, what an intense, immense connection. Um, and just like this giant rekindling of fire I have with AA. Um, I heard things that just got me so close to um, like, I've never felt like this obsession so further lifted than I have like in like my recent recovery. Um, I live in San Jose and uh, I went to a lot of meetings in San Francisco and a lot in Oakland. Um, and I avoided San Jose like the plague and I just didn't want to see like old familiar faces. I didn't want to see my old sponsor. I had the shame and guilt coming back and um. So I didn't do anything San Jose and and when things uh, when meetings started to go back in person in what mid 2021 something like that uh I was like oh shit there goes my fellowship oh shit there's another meeting oh shit what am I going to do and it was just it was interesting for me cuz I think at that time um up until recently in the past I'd say 2 to 3 months um, I didn't really feel like I had a solid foundation of a fellowship. With that being said, I still had groups that I would consider like, you know, a home group, groups that I felt safe with um, and that I still felt connected to. But um, in recent times, uh, just the fellowship and like the idea of the responsibility statement of like, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. Um, was shown to me uh, particularly some fellows that I've I've met down here in the South Bay. And um, I'm really lucky to have a uh, the connection that I do. And you know what? Coming to the rooms for the first time in 2014, um, and I, I guess how I got here. Um, so I grew up in San Jose, and uh, I had I, I, when I was 12, 13, I had bad motor tics, and I was fucking an easy target, and I got made fun of a lot, and um, I really was not a huge fan of myself. And when I found alcohol, I finally could be that fucking person that like allowed me to be like a person, like just on a regular basis level, like not above, not below anymore. Thank fucking God at the time. Um, I felt just like right with you guys and by you guys, I mean, you other drunks. And, um, for the next, uh, few years, I, I, at probably the next year and a half, I, I was 15 when I first started drinking. For the next year and a half, like, 
I just started fucking up in school. I started getting in trouble, getting suspended, getting arrested. And um, I got shipped off to Oahu where uh, things just kind of picked, right, picked up right where they left off. Um, I found quickly the people that uh, smoked weed. I, I didn't I, I hadn't touched alcohol in quite some time. And uh, but when I did, um, it's like those same instinctual patterns of like um like seeking this like connection with others um i think that's what just drugs and alcohol did for me altogether and so like for the next six years like like uh, a lot of other drugs became a part of my story um and uh it just became this just fucking mess of concoction and uh for the next six years uh it's interesting how i notice that I seem to always try to find the easy way out of things. Uh, I find myself very much entitled. Uh, I get very much jealous and I get very much lazy. Um, And those are just a perfect fucking ring around circle of just chaos and um, really just this idea of restlessness. Um. But during those six years on Oahu, like I had moved away from California where I really didn't feel like I, I, I belong just because I the way I was treated by other fellows growing up, um, I got to create this new identity. And with that new identity, I got involved in the rave scene and I had this giant music life out there and things were fucking fantastic for six years. And uh one thing led to another and I had to leave. I had just finished school out there and um, I had to leave Oahu and because I got kicked out of an apartment, I had to leave this oh so fabulous music life behind and move to California and start working professionally. And um, what I noticed is that during both of those moves going out there and moving out here, um, like moving to Oahu I finally felt like no I'm like leaving my home and like finally I'm starting to feel connected because I'm drinking with you guys and I'm partying with you guys and I'm doing the things you guys do and then same thing with Oahu no I'm leaving and I'm going to this professional life because I'm finally feeling like this place of power and like this prestige and um and things just picked right up where they left off it's like no matter where I go there I am and when I ended up back in California, I again, same fucking patterns of like finding those same people that allowed me to drink like I wanted to. And it didn't matter if you drank like I did. Like it's I found the people that didn't give a shit whether or not I showed up with a bottle of E&J and a six pack on a Wednesday night. Um, because that's what I was going to do anyway. Um, and it's, it's interesting because at the time I was young, so I thought I could physically handle it, but, uh, very quickly, uh, alcohol stopped being a luxury. It became a necessity. And I had found out that, uh, if I drank in the morning and I drank in the afternoon, um, during work, my work days would go by faster at this miserable job that I had. And, um, and really looking back, it's like before coming here it's 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 crazy it's like it, i i did not know how 
lucky I was to have the life that I had. And like, I didn't know how to be grateful. I couldn't grasp the, the idea of like living with gratitude. Um, I had everything I needed. And then some, I had a more than fine job. I was doing really good for where I was at at 23 years old. And, um, but at the same time I had lived this idea of, um, now I'm this lonely musician and I have nowhere to go, but to my boring day job. And then I'm by myself in the Mm -hmm. studio and for me two minutes. All right. Holy shit. Um, so when a lot of things led to another, um, the consequences ended up catching up very quickly. Um, I slowly dwindled my ways into the rooms. I'd get three days sober here and then walk out and then like try to manage things on my own and come back in a couple of months later, three days sober, walk out. I'd come back in a month later and things just started to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And where I absolutely just like lost all control. Um, I couldn't hold down more than two weeks. And like what I wanted to do for a number of years was hold down two weeks to save my life. And um, one thing led to another. And I eventually had threatened my dad to my dad with my own life. And uh, I finally said, you know what? Fuck it. I'll go to a spin dry. I went to the spin dry. I got out of the spin dry. I stayed, stayed dry for five months. I didn't go to a single meeting. I was miserable. Um, these relapse periods ended up getting shorter and shorter and it does not get easier. Um, and fast forward to me coming back. Um, you know what? It's like, I ended up at a point where it was, it was totally comprehensible, but it was demoralizing. But you know what? I fucking came back because I had, I had, I had been lucky that I had knew where this place was. And, um, I did a lot of things different. I actually got a sponsor the first day. Um, I did not do that in any other prior time in AA. Um, I ended up getting service commitments. I ended up getting a home group. I felt connected to people that more than I ever have, like, um, even with the, like people that I grew up with, it was fucking wild. Just that first year, I loved it. Um, for anybody new, um, stick around, take advantage of what this program has to offer. One thing my sponsor asked me is like, have you honestly given this program a true chance? And, um, you know what, that was really kind of a game changer. Cause at that point it's like, he could have, we could have hung up the phone right there and I could have just done that same fucking cyclic dance or like that was a turning point where I could have like made a change. And so I asked him to be my, be my sponsor. And so the rest is history. Um, so I'll take another 24 and thank you guys for having me tonight. My name is Ben. I'm alcoholic. Uh, and some guys know me as Michael. A lot of my friends call me Benzo. Got a lot of names, a lot of, strange relationships in life nowadays uh, as a result of sticking around here with you strange people. So if you're feeling like a weirdo, like you don't belong or like you don't fit in anywhere, like welcome, welcome home. Um, yeah. So like I got some time tonight, which is kind of unusual in sharing meetings where I can kind of get into some detail, which I don't normally do, which I think is kind of a cool opportunity. And the flip side of that is Jared came in and had to like squeeze a whole bunch of time into no time. And it's, it's hard to kind of bring people in. Uh, let them know what what happened and and really what life's like now. So if you're like me, you, you kind of land in in AA, and I'll go into how I got here too. But it's it's super awkward, and people seem weird. And uh, if you go to meetings in person, there's like folks trying to hug you, get your phone number, figure you out, and like get into meeting you, which can be awkward. It can be really awkward. If you're like me, you didn't have a lot of like close relationships with people who got to know you too well because alcoholism does that it kind of forces us to play roles you know put your game face on go to work 
uh, pretend you got your crap together when you're talking to your family, you know, go out on a date and you're trying to hide the fact that you're a mess, you know, all that stuff. It's just the stuff we do. Right. So I'll get into it. I, I think one of the things that I have to clarify beforehand is people told me when I got here to look for similarities versus the differences, because we're, we're a dynamic group. We come from all backgrounds, socioeconomic, racially, uh, uh, religious, you know, all this stuff. And like, they told me to check that crap at the door when I walked in. So uh, I invite you guys to do the same, because like the truth is, like just looking at me and you can't do that from an audio recording, but like the guy who's sitting here talking is like tattooed from the neck down and talk strange and, you know, kind of a goofball, weird looking guy. So like my gender might throw you off my cadence, like my, my attitude, whatever. Right. So like uh substance is what we're here for. So that's what I'm hoping to give you a little insight into mine tonight. Um, so I was born in 81. I was born in San Francisco. It's like Bay Area crime story, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so it, the, the truth is I came up in a certain era and under a certain politics and law enforcement and things just kind of were what they were, right? So coming of age uh, in the 90s, the, the uh, world was pretty hostile. And it's worth saying, you know, I come from a broken home. My folks split up when I was nine. And I do remember... Uh, a lot of going through that kind of taught me a lot about myself. And what I mean by that is I process information differently than a lot of people. And you may or may not fall into this category. And I hate to reduce humanity down to two things, but, you know, oversimplifications are harmful, but helpful sometimes too. And in this instance, what I want to say is there's people like me who process information with their, like that cold centered of, of their mind. That's like the intellectual side, Right. Um, and then there's other people who process information emotionally. So my family was very much on the emotional side of processing information. And I was very much on that cerebral side, right? Like, give me a moment to think about this. Like, how, how does this affect me? You know, so things would happen. And I remember that that experience of the family breaking up. I was seen as like quiet and stoic. And like things that uh, I remember my dad was like proud of me. You're handling this well, son. You are now the man of the house and all these just silly things. Right. And though I was distraught and very torn up, I learned really quickly to just turn my emotions off. And uh, it was hard to do. It's really hard to do. Uh, not that I'm not feeling, you know, it just takes me a little while to figure that out before I express it or feel comfortable enough to express it to somebody and the world was dangerous and not a safe place. And I didn't identify with people around me and saw myself as very different for other reasons, too. You know, it wasn't until I was about 16 years old until I met another Choctaw family. I'm half Native American, right? So like half Caucasian and half Native American, I didn't fit in either of those circles. You know, it wasn't dark enough for this side and was, you know, too dark for this other side. So it's just an interesting way to grow up. And then having split theologies on the sides of the families, too, was an interesting thing to see those approaches. Like on one side was, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth of the light. And the other side was the church is evil. You know, like my grandma's story is told all over the place, you know. Um, so both of those things were seen as true, like uh, convergence of uh, diametrically opposed realities. So that's kind of how my existence was. You know, you're a good guy, but you do bad. You're a bad guy trying to do good. Like all of these white and black concepts. 
So I started seeing myself in certain lights as a result of doing certain activity, right? I had a hard time expressing myself. So I remember super vividly, like the first time I got loaded, right? It was hard for me to put out things like I feel disconnected. I couldn't say that, you know, I couldn't say things like I'm lonely, you know, or I'm afraid I have fear, right? Just normal things that people go through is, is a result of just being human in this human experience. <clears throat> I grew up pretty poor. And I, uh, I like saying that because a lot of times we come into the rooms and we compare ourselves to others and some people have and some don't. And that was something that I used to, do, to separate myself from my peers. Like your guys' dads have jobs. Mine doesn't. Like you guys eat dinner around the table. You can't relate to me. Like that kind of stuff. So what I did was uh, I isolated even in a room full of people, even, even like by myself, I was disconnected from my spirit. You know, so it was just a bad way to be. I grew up uh, in that latchkey generation. You hear people talking about where we were like feral animals. So like in my experience, in my generation, this stuff came quickly to us younger. I want to say um, just because of lack of supervision. You know, we were the first generation to have two working parents or in my case, broken home, one working parent working two jobs. And so we just did what we wanted. We were feral. If you didn't want to do your homework when you got home from school, like nobody's there to tell you no. You know, if you wanted to fill your house up full of teenagers and have a freaking party, like that's what you did till the cops came. You know, if she's going to go out on a, on a date with somebody, that's what we're going to do. So I had these, these also, these other experiences of like failing at self-governance, right? Complete lack of discipline, which I think is normal to a certain extent as a young person. You know, young male, you know, go out and have fun, you're young, dumb and whatever, you know. Uh, but in my case, um, uh, you know, I want to talk about the magical day, which is the first day I got loaded. Right. And I remember it like hyper clearly because it had a very definite impact on the following years of my life. And I remember I had an older sister and she's in the backyard with some of her friends. I'm uh, I'm in junior high. So my sister's older, like the girls who are back there with their older girls. So I think they're all hot and cute. And, you know, you know how it is being a young dude. Uh, so I got to come out in the backyard with them where they're drinking and smoking or whatever and partake in the activity. You know, so like the separation in that moment, like I was accepted. I felt good. And I remember cracking jokes and I thought it was funny looking at, you know, I'm, I'm smaller. That's just how it is at younger ages. I'm smaller. I'm a younger guy. I'm not seen as a peer. It's silly. Like, look at the little drunk dude running around and all that. And then I had a moment where I came inside by myself and like the sun was setting the golden hour of the day. And, you know, when you're drinking, the world seems magical. Sometimes this is one of those moments. And I sat down on this dirty, dusty couch and the dust puffed up in the air and uh, it was a crack of light coming through the window. And I remember seeing the dust floating and it was magic and time slowed down and I was warm on the inside and I felt connected to people and I felt loved and everything was right with the world for a brief moment. You know, and what I took from that experience is this is what getting loaded does for me. It fixes the world as chaotic as I am, as messed up as I am inside. You know, instead of developing healthy habits like talking or getting in touch with how I'm feeling, building that emotional vocabulary, seeking healthy things to do with myself, to get out of myself or to feel better, just got loaded. So mind you, I'm like 12 years old when this experience happened. And they say something sometimes too, like your uh, emotional development gets arrested when we start getting 
drunk regularly or high regularly or whatever your thing is. So I, I, I feel some credence to that. Not to say that we don't mature, especially physically. Now to fast forward, uh, you know, I'll take this up to like 17, 18. You know, by 17, I had a criminal record and experience with the state of California Youth Authority and you know, police in town knew who I was. And we moved around a lot and I got thrown out of every school that I went to and sometimes multiple in a year for stuff like the inability to keep my hands to myself and just kind of was falling down this path. Right. And what I didn't realize is there's a lot of traps out there for guys like me. And I didn't have the mental fortitude or the guidance. I didn't have the guidance to see this stuff. You know, the, the, the role models that I had in life were broken men. And I think it's important for us as men to get our acts together and get healthy and lead others. I just didn't have that. You know, my story is what happens. So like the drug and alcohol trap I fell in, the, like the criminal uh, element, the quick ways to make a buck feel better I fell into. And lo and behold, I'm 17. I'm in the system. Emotional maturity of a 12-year-old. And I inflicted that chaos and that anger on the world. And what I mean by that is I had a hair trigger. Like my ideal Friday night involved blacking out and getting into a fist fight and hurting somebody, win, lose, or draw. Like that's ideal. You know, and uh, I, I see a lot of guys coming in like me and like we think that's normal and we think that's what the world is. And we try to project that. And it took me some time to realize that it was a fear complex that tried to uh, create this uh, persona of somebody you don't want to mess with. And it was to keep you at distance so I could be safe. Came out of my insecurity. You know, so 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 some time goes by and like. I remember turning 18. It was just a matter of days before they started taking me to real jail, you know? And if you're like me, you also know like the progression of things, like your charges turn from, from a slap on the wrist to court probation to real probation. And then you start owing them time. And then they had this thing at the time with the overpopulation where they'd let you out early and you'd owe them time. So like the smallest little thing, you know, police contact, uh, jaywalking. Oh, this guy owes us time. Like they throw you back in. So, uh, you know, between 18 and 19 and a half, I just spent a lot of time in county jails all the way up and down uh, California, you know. And I remember thinking it was normal. You know, I can remember the first time going to Santa Rita out there, Alameda County, like feeling proud of myself. Like I graduated. Like I'm one of the cool kids now. So that gives you a little insight into how my mentality was. You know, broken, lost. So something strange happened about that time. And this isn't even part of my my story, but it's somebody else's story. There was this other kid named Danny living down in Montecito, a very well-to-do kid. And his, his parents were in uh, city governance and socialites and all that stuff. And Danny was a good kid. You know, like take, I don't know, donuts to donut cop day or whatever. So the police liked him. The judges liked him. He was just a known, well-known dude. And uh, somebody introduced that dude to heroin. And he overdosed and died. Right? I never met this dude in my life. But as a result of his death, the family got together, came around it. The community got together, came around it and started looking at guys with problems like this and started thinking, maybe there's something else we can do. Now, mind you, this is back in, you know, year uh, 1999, 2000. So they started trying to implement some change in the way that society was dealing with guys like me. Because traditionally, I just get warehoused. I'm on a pathway to prison. Like, that's it. 
you know, it seems like you're, uh, you're, uh, uh, unable to change, sir, you know, and they'd start loading up like the three star strikes rule and stuff like that. And just, you know, pathway to being a, a waste of oxygen, loss of life, um, unredeemable, you know, and I see a lot of guys fall into that trap or have gotten further down that trap than me. But for some reason, here's where that story, that, that, uh, that pathway in my life stopped and it was a judge and it was a judge. So some people understand what this like when you're standing in front of them and you got no defense. And what I stood in front of that judge for was uh, possession of sales again, you know, under the influence charge again. And uh, instead of asking me to plea, the judge says, Hey, you think you might have a problem with drugs and alcohol? And I remember uh, vividly getting a smirk on my face. Like, what, what's going on here? Am I getting punked? Like, like yeah, yeah, what do you think? Of course. Like, look at everything I have on there. You know, like my assault charges, I'm drunk. Uh, minor in possession, drunk in public, drunk in public, drunk in public, drunk in public, disorderly conduct, everything, right? All this stuff. I'm just loaded constantly. You know, so if they catch me, there's something in my pocket or there's something in my system and it's illegal. And that's just my life. That was just my life. You know, I didn't get loaded anymore because I was trying to escape pain. I didn't get loaded because uh, I was trying to celebrate. It was just part of who I was. So do you think you might have a problem? Yeah, to me, it was like my life sucked. I was couching it down there. It's not like I had some big hustle and was on top of the world and they caught me with some crap. No, the reason I kept that garbage on me all the time and sacked up for possession of sales is so I could make a couple bucks back and get loaded again, maybe tomorrow, you know? So going through that experience, the judge had sent, sentenced me to this diversion program, which was like a, this thing they're trying to figure out, just trying to figure this thing out. This is pre-Prop 36, pre-drug course. So I get sentenced to this uh, halfway house you know, sentenced to a halfway house. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Easier, softer way. I get to go out and do some stuff. And parts of me being in this program, you know, uh, were just the suggestions of AA. But I want to talk about that day one, right? Because I think day one is important. You know, because there's people listening to this, may even be in this room today who are on that day one. And it's confusing and you don't want to be here. And usually the, the desire to stop drinking is not yours. Like it's something that's being imposed upon you. It's a punishment. It feels like one. Right. What I didn't understand is I had an opportunity being presented to me for the life that I have now. The impossible life, right? The dream I'm too scared to dream. Because for guys like me, it doesn't happen. See, what I had uh, realized about myself then is I was hopeless. Hopeless state of mind. You'd given up on any other way. And it happens slowly. Because it happens like one day, I'm not going to do this to myself, and you do it again. I'm just like the book says, like, uh, you know, I'm just going to drink beer. I'm not going to black out. And what I learned uh, about myself coming in here and getting in this place because I'd go to these meetings that I had to get like the thing signed and present that to the PO and all this stuff. And I'm in there with guys from ARC program, Sheriff Work Alternative Program, Salvation Army guys, like, you know, the dregs, my people, right? So uh, 
going to these meetings, I had to do other stuff, like get a sponsor, like wake up in the morning, do my chore, like the suggestions, the suggestions they give you here, make friends in AA. You know, and I remember walking into that house on day one and it wasn't easy. See, the culture's changed a lot since I got sober. I remember walking into a hostile environment. I'm 19 years old. I got my chest out. It's a bunch of grown convicts in this house, you know. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to fight. They do this thing called chicken shit bingo, where they put uh, bets, you know, dollar bets down on how long I'm going to last. He ain't going to make it through the night. He'll be out of here by tomorrow. Give him a week. Give him 30 days. So if you walk into a meeting or you come into a Zoom room and you're welcome, like, that's awesome. Take advantage. Friendly faces. Like, these people are interested in helping you take advantage of the culture. Like, what an awesome thing. You know? I remember sticking around for a little while just because I was tired of the crap and people were so rude to me. I'm like, I'm just sticking around to watch you guys get drunk. Like, spitefully, resentfully staying sober. You know? So the time came, and I'm not going to get into too much of that, but uh, I worked steps in that house. You know, I picked up a sponsor, and funny thing about the story, it was so long ago when I was in this place for just a couple months, uh, nine months. I went down, and I, I met that guy. I lost touch with that sponsor, and I reintroduced myself to him, and I told him, like, what he'd done for me. He didn't even remember me. You know, it's kind of funny. Time goes on like that. We make these big impacts on people. And it becomes just so commonplace in our lives. We're like, yeah, whatever. I saved your life. Cool. Like, that's the kind of strangeness that AA is, you know. But uh, in any event, I remember walking, like, doing the third step with this guy, you know, down on your knees saying a prayer with this dude. And at the time, like, racism was cool. This guy's a uh, uh, different race than most of the guys in the room. They're hollering out obscenities, you know, homosexual comments because there's two guys down on their knees doing a prayer. So that's the kind of AA that I had, right? It's a little different than the culture today. So if you, once again, if you're feeling love and accepted and supported in here, please take advantage. Like what a luxury, you know? So going going through all that, you know, I got out of this place and I kind of want to talk about uh, the steps, right? Because arguably that's why we're here. So through talking about the steps, I can kind of explain a lot of things to you guys about how I continue to live sober. So we'll just call that what happened, what it was like and what happened, right? The state of California had an opinion on my crappy, terrible life and forced me to do something different. So let's talk, talk about that, that experience that I've had with the steps. Uh, this is the way out. It's not fellowship, though fellowship is cool. It's not service, though service will help you get connected. Like what I'm in here is to change the fundamental essence of who I am because I was tired of being me, you know? And going through this process, we lose the desire to drink, the impossible thing, right? It's like getting to wear a new skin. You know, I know people today who can't imagine me the way that I was. That's what we're offering here. You know, I have a 17-year-old kid today who's never seen his dad drunk. That's what we offer here. So let's talk about that. Let's jump in. So let's talk about step one. You know, I'd worked step ones. It was just some magic words and incantation to stay in the dark, right? So if, uh, what it turns out is, is step one's pretty loaded. And I think that's why a lot of people struggle with it. Because in the two parts, it says, number one, I'm powerless over alcohol. What does that mean? What does that mean? I make a decision to drink just like the coffee, right? No, that's not what it means. What it means is as soon as I put alcohol into my system, I'm physically different than other people. 
Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not like other boys. That's what I've been telling the girls forever, right? But it turns out my physiology, when I introduce alcohol into my system, it reacts differently than normies, normal people. Pretty simple. And that's what I'm powerless over. I can't change that. It's an equation every single time. Me, A. B, alcohol. A plus B equals C, jail. Right? I don't get to take these inter incremental little steps into the unmanageability. It's all wrapped up in there. You know, so the second part of this thing is my life is unmanageable. And that's an interesting concept, right? So the first time I looked at this, I was living in this halfway house. You know, the state of California told me when the lights were supposed to go off. That's pretty unmanageable. And though I could take that as unmanageability in my life, that's not necessarily, though wrapped in, to the unmanageability that Alcoholics Anonymous was trying to teach me about. And the wild part, which I'm hoping people pick up on here tonight, is the fact that unmanageability is still in my life. I continue to be unmanageable. Right? And I'm not saying that to, like, take away your hope or say we go through periods that are great and I feel like I got the world by the balls. But what I mean is the unmanageability of AA, and I'm pulling out my phone here just to look at, and I closed it, so we're not going to look at that. The unmanageability in my life is defined, right? And we call them these bedevilments. And it's by no means a comprehensive list of the unmanageability in life. You know, it says things like, uh, I can't control my emotional nature. Does that sound like you today, sober or not? Uh, I'm I'm run by fear and depression. Like, does that sound like anxiety and depression? Does that sound like you today, sober or not? I have troubles in relationships. Does that sound like you today, sober or not? And what's cool about these steps is they don't just apply to my alcoholism, right? What they can do is they can help me get in this place where I'm freaking crazy about things, not seeing things how they are. I can get some clarity and take a change in, in action about them. And I still go through that with life today. If I have some time, I'll talk about that in the end. But yeah, that's step one. Powerless over alcohol, its effects on me, what it does to my mind and body. And my life is unmanageable. I suffer from these bedevilments. Simple. So step two was about, about some hope for the first time. Pretty simple. Something outside of me can help me change. Right. And, and the verbiage gets all funky and says, uh, you know, something to the fact when I read it that there's a God and I must chase God and serve God and buy a bike and uh, a white uh, iron shirt and a tie and ride with the Mormon boys. Uh, that's not what it says at all. You know, step two is just coming to the conclusion within myself that I can be helped and it's not going to come from inside me. It's pretty simple. And like step one and step two, these are just thoughts. These thoughts can happen right now. They can occur to me right now, right? You can work steps one and two just in between my ears. You know, step three is making a decision to do what it takes to get sober. I, I struggled with step three because I couldn't find real concisely anything that it was talking about anywhere in there. Once again, I process information cerebrally, right? I was looking for pragmatic action to take with my hands or my feet or my back or pen and paper. And I couldn't find that in step three, besides the direction that said, I'm making a decision and a commitment con to continue with the work. So I launch into step four, right? I make a commitment to do the work. What's the work? Move on to step four. Let's go, right? 
Let's jump in here. Let's start doing the work. And step four, I kind of missed the point a couple of times too. Like it felt like homework. I thought I was going to get graded. I thought I was like me introducing myself to my sponsor for the real me. I'm going to find out about me. I'm going to blah, 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 forever. The head just ran with what the step four was all about. So I balked on it for a long time. And turns out for me, for me and my pragmatic program, step four was skill building. What do I mean by that? You know, I'd spent all of my life being mad at you, afraid of you, blaming you, tired of you. And what I got from step four was for the first time in my life, taking ownership of my emotions because I had nothing to do with you. Like the wounds I carry turned into a decision to carry the wound because there's another way to be. Right. And I'm always afraid of what I might be if I'm not this. You know, I learned in taking that step forward that I was resentful at fill in the blank. And not because of what happened or that narrative that I wrote down, but because of that third column in there where you learn the truth about who we are. Because I'm afraid it affects my money. It affects my relationships. I might lose it. That fear that it talks about. It's getting in touch with that thing for the first time. If you haven't done it yet, I highly invite you to get a sponsor. Like at this point in the literature, we kind of need somebody to offload and start bouncing this stuff off on. So the sponsorship's a big deal, right? The flashlight in the dark, the, the primer or the key to decipher the map. That's what the sponsorship is, right? So if you have a friendship with this person, you think they're cool or whatever, like that's all extra bonus goodies, so if you're balking or hesitating on finding somebody, just find somebody that sounds like they know what they're talking about in regards to the work. You know, not because their wife's hot or their car's cool, although a cool car does mean a lot in my world. But in any event, that's what the fourth step was. Learning this process by which I changed from blaming the world to looking inside. And then I get into the fifth step here, which is about admit admitting that stuff to myself. I'm not, there's other inventories to take in the fourth. I'm simplifying here. But in five, I look at the truth, black and white. Here's what's up. And that's heavy for me. You know, all the times I was wrong, I had a sponsor telling me the hardest thing I am to be is wrong. It's that simple. You're just, you were wrong. And that would tear me up inside. Or I'd have these illusions, like these ideas that were broken or not in line with reality. You know, like I talked about inventing that persona that was fear-based. Like maybe that persona is not a real human. Maybe I just wear his clothes. Maybe I just pretend to be him. And who are you, right? I don't know. I'm afraid to be anything but this. So facing and being rid of self has been such a huge part of how I can continue to be here, right? Like you're wrong. Egg on the face. Okay, cool. Well, let's move on. Six and seven were like super easy. You know, if you read the, the direction to take in step six, it's like, go home, shut up for a little bit. Think if you left anything out, if you did, then uh, get, get to work on getting that purged. And then we say this little prayer, right? So I was expecting a whole lot out of six and seven. I was expecting to walk around as a new man, you know, wouldn't have a big brown nose anymore. <laughs> Just whatever, right? be willing to play golf with the guys at the golf club, you know, instead of riding motorcycles with the homies. But uh, that didn't happen. What I, what I ended up with is I ended up being willing to do something different. You know, just like in the third step, I committed to do something different. Now I know what the problem is. 
and I'm willing to do something different here in seven. And it's real concise at this point. It's my patterns now that I got out in the fourth step. So when I see the things and I recognize them, I don't want to fall into the same traps anymore. Like I said, this stuff's pragmatic. I well up with emotion when I'm triggered. You know? And it's the same thing. It's the new relationship where she's talking to somebody and it reminds me of the old relationship where she cheat on me. So now I think the new person's cheating on me and I well up with emotion. This is what the steps are for. Right? So what do I do with that? Now I have an opportunity to do something different. I just pick that as an example out of the air. Well, I have some feelings. Well, what's the feeling about? I'm hurt. I'm scared. Like this stuff is practical. Like it talks about using uh, the steps in the program in our daily life. This is how we do it. So that's six and seven, right? So the eighth step is when I finally start looking at the harms that I've done to people instead of what they've done to me. And I simply make a new list and their names. And what's cool about eight and nine is eight and nine is once again, skill building. You know, after starting to do some of this ninth step work of cleaning up my mess, like I can walk around with my head higher because some of the stuff on there is like making amends is like restitution to the state of California, like back taxes, you know, paying my court fines, registering my car, like getting right with the world. You know, I've had, I had, uh, some, some of these amends I put, put off for a long time. I'm hoping you have a sponsor to bounce your great ideas off of is one of the trends that I notice is people get sober and they go from working on step one to immediately wanting to call all their exes and tell them how they're different and changed and let's make it up and patch it all up. And there's a lot of these traps and you need help. You know, these, these bright ideas from a sick mind, right? That's the insanity. So we should have a process, i.e. the steps that we work through these great ideas through and help from others. And uh, eight and nine set me up for 10 because 10 is constantly looking at my harm in others and my conduct and being willing in the moment to admit, number one, that I was wrong. Number two, how do I make it up to you? And the 10th step is arguably what allows me to continue in relationships in my life today. Because I have sick moments where I still act like a jerk. My personality is abrasive. You know, even without intentionality, my my uh, sense of humor can be harmful to people. I like teasing people, you know, and that works great with the vast majority of the population who gives it right back to me and we're homies. And then there's other people that get hurt. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And I have to change the way that I behave, you know. That's what 10 does for me, because it gives me that opportunity to continue going down the path of not hurting people. And making things right. And now I get into 11 and 11 starts uh, sounding funny. So I don't talk about this too much. But I want to tell you guys that uh, the, the spirit had woken up. And I had a hunger for knowledge about the thing. And I had some experiences that made uh, truth of the unseen reality to me. And when everybody talks about this stuff in meetings, it sounds crazy because it's hyper-personal. You know? Uh, I could say things like God bought me a table and people would be like, what the hell is he talking about? But if you were there, you know, uh, yeah, just a little bit about that. Uh, me and my wife were expecting our first child. We were super poor, couldn't afford nothing. Looking, uh, Planned Parenthood for strollers. 
couldn't pay my way, barely able to make it. And we'd seen this table that we really wanted. And we were uh, in that place of just struggling and hurting and having a hard time eating. And somebody donated the table that we'd picked out to us, un- completely unbeknownst to us. Had the same thing, you know, in those moments. You just realize you're okay. Things are going to be okay. Like, to me, a lot of this uh, spiritual experience is just feeling connected to this thing that I was so disconnected to. And it's really hard to describe. I'm not going to get into theology. I just want to tell you guys that there's this whole... Uh, unseen reality that i get to touch and be part of today and it's pretty freaking cool uh, i invite you to figure out what that is for yourself and i don't care what you find tell me about it when you do yeah moving into the 12th step the 12th step i found is about my conduct my conduct in life and it's the example of life that i live i can say anything in here to you guys talk about how cool i am how talented and shine how i smell so good you guys don't know but the truth is in how I walk and how I live my life. Really quickly, I got a couple of minutes left. And it's carrying the message. It's in moments like this where it's easy. You're listening. You have to be muted. You know? But who am I? Who am I to my children? You know? Who am I to my wife? Like, this is the message. You know, so I can kind of talk about my life today in this last three minutes. Like, health has been a concern of mine lately. You know, uh, what I'm going from in life is this hyperproductive period to now I'm getting older. My physiology is changing and I'm more uh, energy is required to put on health. You know, I've done a lot of the internal work. I'm no longer in turmoil or self-destructing or sabotaging my life anymore. But it's just, you know, we go through these phases and in, in periods of time. So it's like. Okay, geez, my testosterone level's dropping and I'm 41 and I'm tired and I want to take a nap instead of going to the gym and blah, blah. So like all these little like, you know, finesse tweaks and life hacks and how do I get the most out of this thing? You know, I've had a, a, a strange, a strange experience in life, right, which was this alcoholism thing. And a lot of the stories that I've learned and seen the way that people have lived life since I got sober in 2001, I see that. Uh, decisions that we make arguably affect our longevity in here, period. And it's not necessarily alcoholism that kills a lot of us. You know, maybe the damage that you did, but it's these other unhealthy things in my life today. It's like, how do you eat? You know, what time do you go to bed? What time do you get up? So taking better care of myself, you know? So I'm hoping that that stuff that I've learned out there, and especially in the steps, right? Just like the cheeseburger isn't working. The cheeseburger is making my life unmanageable. Like this stuff applies to everything. You know? Because it, 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 uh, the core of it is a sick mind who believes things that aren't true. This is okay. It'll be different this time. This won't hurt like the last one did. You know? So understanding the truth, you know, through understanding and application, it works. And that's where I want to live. You know, I want to live in the solution today. So I guess that's what it's like now. Uh, Just really quickly, like that same kid who grew up in poverty, like has a wonderfully upper middle class life today. And I'm super pumped about that. This was the impossible dream. This is the impossibility. You might as well have told me I'd be flying around in rocket ships and like circling the moon on vacation. 
I'd believe you just as much as saying that like you own a small business and your wife likes you 60% of the time and your kids love your company and your parents respect your life. That's the impossible dream. So I want to welcome you guys to it. I think I'm running out of time here, maybe another minute or two. And uh, yeah, aim big. And uh, just if there's anything that I can do like here to wrap this up is I want to, uh, I want to be encouraging. I want to be encouraging, right? Because some of us are just in here on court cards or court appointed, and we don't want this thing. Like, I hope that something in here is so attractive. If some, like, a gutter rat idiot like me can do this thing, then so can you. And I'm going to shut up. Appreciate you asking me to do this, Laura. <laughs>